0: Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Deflategate and the law. All right, Richard, this is a slightly lighter topic this week. For more than a year now, we've been living with the fallout from – gate, which is the controversy over whether the New England Patriots used deflated footballs to gain a competitive advantage in last year's AFC championship game against the Indianapolis Colts. And this has particularly ensnared the Patriots quarterback, Tom Brady, who it's been suggested was the one uh, at whose direction explicitly or implicitly this was happening. Now, the NFL originally gave Brady a four-game suspension, which is no small matter in a league where you've got 16 games in a regular season. But that was overturned last year by a federal trial judge. Now, this week on appeal, the Second Circuit has reversed the lower court and sided with the NFL. So Richard, first question here, and I think one that a lot of our listeners will probably have, why – Are the federal courts weighing in on suspension policies in professional sports?
1: Well, I mean, that's an answer uh, which essentially could ask you the following question. Uh, Why do federal courts ever get involved in anything? And the answer is the sports take place on the field, uh, but they also take place with respect to the collective bargaining agreement that was entered into between the union on the one hand on behalf of all of its players and the league on the other. These are highly contentious agreements uh, to take place. In fact, there's a common practice. Practice for them to bargain to impasse. Once they bargain to impasse, the union dissolves itself. Once the union dissolves itself, the workers bring a antitrust action against the league for a collective refusal to deal. And Then what happens is they form an agreement, they drop the antitrust suit, and they go right back to collective bargaining old style. So, I mean, uh, this is essentially the lifeblood of this arrangement. And for the players, the collective bargaining agreement is the way which they can make sure they keep their real monopoly power by having a freedom to sign up with other clubs after certain specific specific milestones are reached. And for the league, essentially, it's a way of keeping parity amongst the various teams because they well know this is not a form of socialism. But if every game is won by a walk, nobody will pay any attention to any of them. Uh, So the basic incentive is everybody wants the rules to be roughly equal. And then at the same time, they all would like to get some kind of competitive advantage. And that's where Mr. Brady comes into this situation. How do you get that advantage? Well, you draft well, you train well and so forth. Uh, But if you could cheat a little bit at the margins, then in effect that will help your team and hurt everybody else. And so what happens is people are well aware of this and they ask themselves who is going to be the better steward of the reputation of the league at large. The union representing players who have short-term interests, or the uh, owners who represent long-term interest in these kinds of arrangements. And the way the bargaining agreements have come out for 40 years or so is that they give the commissioner who is the devil incarnate many times to the players, uh, the exclusive and plenary power to resolve all questions of law and fact as they arise out of the interpretation and application of the collective bargaining agreement. And that's the basic text. And so when you get into court, what you have to do is to understand that they're trying to create a system of private ordering insulated from judicial review. There's nothing which allows you to say that somebody can't sue Because that's a unilateral action. And then the key question that you have to face in the court is when asked to overturn what the league has done, to what extent do they want to establish a strong presumption of league autonomy?
0: Well, uh, to that point, Richard, the majority ruling in this case sort of conceded that the NFL has an unusual structure in place for these things. The league's commissioner actually presides in the appeals of his own decisions. But they, in essence, said, look, it it might be weird – But that's what's in the collective bargaining agreement that everybody signed off on. What sort of legal authority would judges have to go the other way? That is to say, when when can a judge look at the result of a CBA and say, look, I know you guys agreed to this, but this is crazy and we can't uphold it.
1: Well, I mean, the judge below, Richard Berman, did essentially that. And what he said is, if you looked at the way in which this thicker thing was interpreted, uh, the kind of evidence that they were willing to allow in, the interpretations and so forth, showed that the commissioner was acting not as a judge, but kind of as a participant with his own interest. And so he was beyond the scope of the collective bargaining agreement, and therefore he could set it aside. Now, generally speaking, those arguments are extremely difficult to make, because what you're saying, in effect, is serious miscarriage. Of judgment in the particular case, perhaps even ballast, means that you're no longer dealing with a labor dispute, which is covered by the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, but remember, there were four judges who heard this case: Berman being down below, and the Chief Judge Katzman. And two of them said they thought that uh, the, the Commissioner Goodell, I guess, is his name, has sort of gone beyond his powers. And two have decided the other way around. So even though it, it was pretty much a decision consistent with previous labor law, uh, there were a lot of people who thought that this case. Was sufficiently raw in the way in which the facts and the law were dealt with that they were prepared to bend the particular rules on jurisdictions to say an egregious miscarriage on the merits counts as going beyond the scope of the power that's given to you under the collective bargaining agreement. The conventional view under this issue is the one that you hinted at in your question, Grin and Barrett. It. it may well be terrible, but the long term institutional stability of football depends on being credible on these kinds of issues. And if you're worried about anything that hits the integrity of the game and you're a football player, you start looking at FIFA and the soccer guys, the other kind of football, and you realize that if you get a kind of a rickety structure there, it can shake the game to its roots. And professional football, American style, does not want to be victim to that. And the interesting question will be, when this collective bargaining agreement comes up to renewal, will the union demand some kind of other structure to be put into place?
0: Richard, as longtime listeners of this show will know, you're generally a critic of labor unions. What's your take on their role in professional sports? How do you feel about the players associations?
1: Well I mean i have, it's a universal distaste. Um, my own <laughs> view about all of this stuff is that what, what what we do is we have this very odd situation. first of all, you get a league, and a league is a very complicated institution because all the teams are heavily rivaled one to another, and so therefore they are competitors. But on the other hand, since they have to maintain competitive balance, they act as essentially as a cartel to organize the sport and and so, what you can say about the league is that what it does is it limits the competitive options that are available to players on the other side of the situation uh, because there's only one football league and in fact when there were two football leagues if one remembers the AFL and the NFL they merged and the same thing happened with respect to basketball and they wiped out the federal league and baseball so there's a kind of a tendency here for these leagues to come together for operational and efficiency reasons alright well they do this well the players are going to turn around and say you got a monopoly we want to have the same kind of cloud against you because we've got no other place to go. At this point, it's a very difficult second-best judgments to make. Well, what happens is if you really believe in the monopoly issue, a countervailing power becomes a perfectly desirable thing because now otherwise the management will gobble up too much of the rents associated with the operation of the game. But on the other hand, the moment you put the union in, you risk massive instability because they will start holding out for very extravagant situations. Occasionally it all breaks down and you've had shutdowns in football, shutdowns down in baseball, shut down in hockey, shut down in basketball, because the collective bargaining agreement does that. If you're concerned with the sort of consumer welfare of the fans and the public at large. You don't want the unions to be around. Uh, But in this particular case, it's a particularly hard sell to make to the players, given all of the complications that I've just talked about above. So um, my own preference is that you basically go back to the old draft system. It's a kind of peonage, one would be able to say, but it has greater continuity in terms of its operation, uh, lower salaries to be sure. Uh, Generally speaking, what's going to happen is you'll probably have more players more leagues and so forth growing up and I think that socially it's a better situation. Uh, But if you start talking to the players, uh, you're going to have a very, very hard sell. Now, there's one other thing to mention. This is a very unusual union because it's not really a union in the sense that the union negotiates for each of the players each of these players has individual agents and what happens is this is not like the steel workers where the difference between the first best steel worker and the tenth best steel worker is 2% in productivity. This is Tom Brady against somebody at the bottom of the quarterback list and the salary ability differences are so enormous that you cannot negotiate collective salaries for the players. And so what the collective bargaining agreement very carefully calls for is a situation in which each player gets to negotiate his own contracts his own agents and then what happens is the constraint that is put on by the collective bargaining organization is w- when you have to uh, have a right of renewal to the existing team, and when it varies and it gets very complicated because early on you have to resign uh, then they have a matching and then you become a full free agent. All of this is designed to make sure that you respect the individual differences in strength amongst the players and if you don't do that, management is going to find itself in a very bad position because great players will essentially leave the sport and they 'll be all the poor so I mean these characters know how they're running the system uh, in terms of its internal stability, but my own Belief is that the older pre union system was probably the better one, but I think now that this is in place, you will never see a return to that older ordering arrangement.
0: Tom Brady's prospects on appeal what are the chances of this being heard by a full panel of the Second Circuit or even the Supreme Court?
1: Well, the, I think it's vastly different in the two cases. Um, in yeah. terms of the Second Circuit stuff, you know, this is the way I would do the um, petition for appeal if I was representing. Brady. I would say, look, there are four judges who have heard it. It's 2-2. Two, two. Clearly this is a momentous importance in terms of the structure and the organization of the particular leave. Obviously, there's a substantial question here. This is the kind of thing that you guys really love to get your hands into. Why don't you start to hear it? And, you know, generally speaking, in place like the Second Circuit, you don't get this to go very often, but this case has enough pizzazz and sex appeal that they might take it. So I would put the odds at something under 10%, uh, but not much lower than than that. Going to the Supreme Court it's a completely different game. The Supreme Court is not interested in sexy cases. The Supreme Court basically wants to take cases that will shape the nature of the law and in an odd sense hearing really controversial cases on the facts is likely to cause it trouble rather than to bring to it credit. And so I don't think and I think most experts in the area don't think that the Supreme Court is apt to find a serious federal or constitutional question on this. They will treat it largely. As it was treated below, as a matter of contractual interpretation. And the Supreme Court is not a court of last resort for contractual disputes. It's somebody who tries to figure out what the base. Great spaces of major federal regulatory statutes like the Clean Air Act and the Water Act and the FDA and the administrative agencies, how they work. They run the tax system and so forth. But the number of contract-type cases they take is very, very tiny. One could try and say, well, this is really a labor union case rather than a contract case. Uh, but it turns out that there's very little in this particular case which turns on the distinctive structure of the National Labor Relations Act. Everything that people argued was a combination of contract contract law, and public uh, policy limitations on contractual freedom. So I would put the odds of the Supreme Court hearing it are lower than I would hear the odds of this case being done on rehearing. Uh, that doesn't strike me as being completely improbable. This is a perfectly representative panel. And remember, it was the chief Justice who was in, uh, Chief judge who was in dissent, and he might have just enough pop uh, to get enough people to think about it. I should tell you, I've only argued one appellate case in my life. I won it on the panel 2-1 and I lost it on a rehearing 6-5, and so my career came to an ignominious end in the world of antitrust. So I'm very much afraid of rehearings because one of the things you can say is if the rehearing is granted, uh, the chances of it being upheld probably is close to 50%.
0: OK, last question I'll put to you, a, a non-legal question, a procedural question for how you run professional sports. Athletes are always looking for a competitive advantage, and the leagues are always trying to draw the line between what's sort of acceptable gamesmanship and what's outright cheating. And amongst football fans, there's a lot of people on both sides of that argument when it comes to this issue in this case of the yeah. pressure in the ball. And we can think of analogous arguments in other sports. Are there general principles for how these leagues should think through those questions or does it inevitably just have to be sort of ad
1: hoc? Well, I think there are always institutional changes that you want to make in the events of a fix. And so let me just mention one of the facts here, and I think it will show you why the thing could take place elsewhere. Um, what happens is the way in which it works is that each team has control over the balls that it uses on offense. And, and that's an open invitation uh, for somebody to decide to lower the pressure a little bit. On the other hand, of course, the Brady forces say, well, it was cold that day, and when it's cold, Boyle's Law takes over, and it turns out out that the ball gets a little bit floppier because it's the heat that keeps the gas moving and therefore expands it. Well, I don't want to ever be in a position of I'm running the league to decide whether it was weather or malice, which led to the way in which the ball was moved. And so what you have to do is to essentially have some independent system of checking to make sure that things have begun right. And this happens in just about every sport. You know, If you have to weigh in boxers or wrestlers into a particular competition, you don't let the team do it in the locker room. What you have have to do is to have a public weighing reasonably close to the time of the event so that people can't go back and gorge themselves on food in the interim. If you're doing baseballs, you don't let each team supply its own, what you do is you have the umpire supplies them so you can watch out as to whether or not they're messing up the ball in some way uh, so that it'll be more difficult to hit. And I think virtually every sport has all of that stuff. And so what typically happens when you have a miscarriage like this is you don't try and figure out how to win the evidentiary battle. What you try to do structurally is to say, where was it that the chain of control slipped up, which gave the opportunity for a self-interested team to take an advantage? And my guess is that they probably have already changed the practices with respect to balls. And it's doubly ironic. Remember, the score in that game was, what, 45 to 7? You know what does it mean to take a ball? It should have been forty-two to seven. It just becomes <laughs> absolutely crazy uh, that you should do it. And you know, I, my own view about this is, given the fact that it was a blowout, that it did not affect the outcome, is that I think that a lot of what was going on here was based on two factors. One is there is a very uneasy perception on the part of the league that its premium players may be getting a free pass, uh, which could give rise to certain kinds of resentments about double standards in sports, which is a very important issue. And the other thing is, you know, Bill Belichick is not particularly popular among a lot of people. He's always been involved in a bunch of things that are coming close to scandal, you know, uh, stealing signals or whatever else it turns out to be. And I think that there's a fair bit of resentment towards him. So if it had not been Brady, it had not been the Patriots, it had not been Belichick, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, nor am I sure which way I would have decided this case if I had been the judge. Um, Just on the simple point, I think it's bad that Brady managed to destroy his cell phone. But it's not necessarily decisive in this case. There was a lot of probative evidence on behalf of Brady that seemed to be excluded by Goodell. Uh, So, you know, there's going to be a lot of sore feelings on both sides of this particular case, which means, in effect, that your number one goal going forward is to make sure that you never get a spectacle like this again, in which it turns out that your reputation is going to take a hit no matter which way you decide it.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For The Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of The Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.